0: Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. Heavenly Father, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And above all else, Lord Jesus, set our hearts on fire with a love for you. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, and we are going to be working out of 1 Peter chapter 5 today. So if you have your Bibles with you, um, <clears throat> go to 1 Peter. It's it's way back uh, to the right in the New Testament, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, and we're going to um, look at verse 8 here in just a minute. So we are we are in the season of Lent, and Lent, as you can see, things are a little bit different even in here as we this season is set apart as a time of preparation for for Good Friday and for Easter. Because the idea is that that to fully understand uh, and to celebrate the, the victory that Jesus won on the cross and in his resurrection, we need to stop and contemplate why a victory was needed at all. And if such a price as uh, as the life of Christ Himself was given on Good Friday, if such a price needed to be paid, what is the debt? It's it's uh, a lot of signs and uh, and stores and grocery stores and everything else will start now to carry all of their Easter things. It's not Easter yet. It'd be great if all we could think about is just the resurrection and the joy of that. But there is a reality that is our need for repentance because we are still sinners, right? And so during Lent, um, we set apart a time to intentionally think about things that we don't always want to think about, that we would rather not think about oftentimes. Three of those things are what, is, what are traditionally known as three of the great enemies of God's people, sometimes called the unholy trinity, Satan, sin, and death. That's what we're going to look at in our sermon series during Lent as well, are these three things. Two weeks here at the beginning on Satan. Today, who is he? Next week, how does he work? then Father Jared is going to talk to us about sin and what sin looks like. What is the, what, what is, uh, what, why is sin so bad? Uh, and What is it? Then we're going to spend two weeks on death. What is death? Where do we go when we die? How do we prepare for death? How do we die well as Christians? And how do we grieve well as Christians? We're going to talk about these things. You know what? We don't always wake up, hopefully, I pray, thinking, you know what I'd love to think about today? Satan, sin, and death. Um, if that is how you wake up, please see me afterwards and we'll, uh, we'll have conversations. But it's important that we look at, at, at these things. So today we start with Satan himself. We're going to work out of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter tells us, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We both overestimate and underestimate Satan and his demons. C.S. Lewis wrote a great book called The Screwtape Letters. If you ever get a chance to read it, it's a, it, is, uh, it is a satire, really. Uh, it's, it's sort of a training manual. It's a, it's a, it's a collection of fictional letters from, from Uncle Wormwood, who is training his nephew, Screwtape, on how to tempt people. Okay, uh, and so it is. Uh, it is meant to be humorous. It's also disturbing on one hand because you recognize all of the things that Lewis teaches in there and and uh, and reports in there are things that happen in our lives as well. But in the in the introduction to screw tape, screw tape letters, Lewis says this: There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. The Bible talks a lot about demons, and so we cannot deny their existence. In fact, the Bible talks a lot about heavenly realms, unseen spiritual realms that we can barely understand. First Peter chapter 3 says Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Angels authorities and powers. He doesn't then go into how all of that works. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is all reference to things that, that have not been fully revealed to us, and thank the Lord they have not, because we can't grasp them, nor do we have any control over them. And even the temporal things that, we, that are revealed to us give us uh, lots of anxiety because we can't control the very world that we live in. If we knew the reality of the spiritual realms as well, it would crush us. And so he doesn't reveal all of those things to us. But we do see Jesus and his disciples come face to face with demons who are tormenting people and casting, and we see them cast them out. And acts, we see the same things. And beyond that is more. The Bible not only talks about demons, the Bible talks about a particular demon who is chief of all demons, whose name is Satan, sometimes just called the devil, that definite article, the devil in front of it. The devil oftentimes refers to his overall work, not just the work of Satan himself, but the legions of fallen angels that follow him and his will as well. We call them demons, or as Lewis just did, we call them the devils. Okay, so there's the Bible talks about one chief and then legions of demons who are under Satan. Satan and demons are real. Our disenchanted world wants to regulate Satan to a superstitious time. Can someone who is educated and capable of rational thought actually believe in a personal evil being and legions of demons? Polls have shown that the majority of Christians in America cannot unequivocally state that they believe that Satan is real and is a personal being or that demons exist. That's problematic, friends, because the Bible teaches us otherwise. And as uncomfortable of a topic as it is, we cannot simply choose to believe the doctrines that we want to to believe and dismiss the ones that are uncomfortable or embarrassing for us. And the Bible tells us that Satan and his demons are real. To deny the existence of Satan and demons, either by just simply refusing to believe in that or to intellectually explain them away by saying the Bible is just simply talking about symbols of evil, not personal evil beings. Or to say the Bible is from an ancient culture that that blamed mental or physical issues on the supernatural, but we know now through science is are really just um, issues of chemicals in the brain or physical problems with the body. To say these things is de- to deny the literal sense in which the same Bible that tells us Jesus is is here and alive also tells us that Satan and demons are real. It was no symbolic representation of evil that tempted Jesus in the wilderness. It was no symbolic representation of evil that Jesus cast out of a man into a herd of pigs who then threw themselves off a cliff. Evil exists, and personal evil beings exist, including Satan. To deny them is to let their work go unnoticed and unchecked. And as Lewis said, that pleases them just fine. The other extreme, besides denying their existence, that Lewis brings out is, uh, is that we see them in everything, and we give them more credit than they deserve. Satan and demons are creatures that crave glory and attention, and if we give them our fear or see them around every corner, they are equally pleased. Believing in demons and Satan is not only for the crazy lady who has dozens of cats and charts of the end times on her wall. It is not immature to believe in Satan and demons. In fact, it is immature to idealistically believe otherwise. But don't become superstitious and see them everywhere. Go play Dungeons and Dragons. It's fine. The 80s were wrong, okay? Um, <laughs> it's, you're gonna be all right. At the same time, don't practice the occult and invite demons into your life through spells and crystals and incantations and prayers in which you are speaking to demons and asking them to enter into your life. Don't do that because they will. There's a difference between being superstitious and seeing them everywhere or having a false sense of security that they don't exist and therefore being unaware. It's not enough just to believe in Satan and his demons uh, and believe that they are real. We need to believe the correct things about them. Because out of fear and ignorance, we have created many images and misconceptions that that are incorrect. So we have a misshapen view of who Satan really is and who his demons really are. And misconceptions then lead to superstitions and how we sort of combat them. Like Here's one of my favorites, right? Is that that most images of Satan dress him in a custom Spanx bodysuit right, that, uh, that fits around his pointy tail and his horns, which he accessorizes with a pitchfork. Not in the scripture. Not there. That's not how, this, how Satan is ever described. In fact, that was a medieval image that was made of him in order to mock him. Or this one, right? Sense since salt is seen in the scripture as a sign of righteousness, and you are the salt of the earth, and you don't want it to be thrown out and trampled, and that, that this superstition has come that if you spill the salt at the dinner table, you're supposed to take some of it and throw it over your shoulder. Do you know why? because you've just spilled righteous salt, and Satan is coming after you, and get this. If you throw it over your shoulder, it'll hit him in the eye, and he won't be able to see you anymore to get you because you spilled the table salt. Friends, not how it works in any way. If you spill the salt, scoop it up, and I don't know, put it on you, or throw it away. Like, that's all. There's Satan is not coming after you because you spilled the salt, and if he was, Throwing salt at him will not stop him. Right? So we need correct understanding of who Satan is. You cannot sell your soul to Satan to be a great musician. Right? Like uh, Robert Johnson, the great blues guitarist who supposedly stood at a crossroads in Mississippi and gave his soul to Satan in exchange for his abilities. Or Charlie Daniels who bet his soul against a fiddle of gold that he was better than you. Not how it works. Not how any of this works. That, Satan, is actually seems pretty easy to avoid. If he comes to you making you a wager against your soul, don't do it. Not what the Bible says. Not how he functions in any way at all. So who is he? Well, here's a snapshot of the Bible, of what the Bible says about Satan, and it's hard to grasp. There's not a book of Satan that just explains all of this in, in the Bible, and when it does talk about the Bible, talk about Satan in the Bible, what we see is written oftentimes in prophetic literature or in apocalyptic literature, both of which are a genre in the scripture that is full of symbolism uh, and full of Old Testament references. This is why you can't read Revelation like tomorrow's newspaper. That's not, that's, not how, that's not how it works at all, right? Um, and, so, uh, and so trying to understand exactly what has happened with Satan it takes some effort uh, and some, some reading and some, uh, and some listening to teachers who, who have gone deeply into these things. And so here's a description of, of what we can understand that brought, of what brought Satan to earth. In Isaiah, he is referred to as the light bearer or also translated the dawn bringer, or in Latin, Lucifer. He is a created being, an angel of light, and one of the most beautiful. Ezekiel calls him an anointed guardian cherub. In other words, the cherub, types of angels that, if you remember the description of the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherub on top with golden wings outstretched. The cherub, when we see descriptions of heaven, they are seated on either side of the throne of God. Uh, and In fact, in 2 Kings and Isaiah as well, God is called the God who is seated between the cherubim. So, Ezekiel 28 says this, You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So if we unpack that a little bit, what we see as an anointed guardian cherub. The cherub, it seems like, um, are the ones who help lead the worship in heaven. Um, and so they are, uh, they are worship leaders and seemingly sort of generals of the heavenly host, of the armies of God as well. And they stand next to him. They, and They're in that kind of close proximity to him. And it says, in the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence. So his trade, his, his vocation was to lead the worship of God, and then he was, he was proud because of his own beauty. And so basically what it seems like is being described here is that he was one of the worship leaders in heaven who then, uh, who then decided, why does God get all this glory? Look at me. Look at how beautiful I am. Look at how deserving I am. Why does God get all the glory when it's me who should get some of this glory? And before you judge him too harshly, don't we do the same thing? Don't we go, it's really me who should be in charge. It's really me who should be getting the glory. It's really, it's really. Why does why is this life all about God? This life is supposed to be about me. We'll talk more about that next week. But before we judge Satan too harshly, Let us just see him as an example of the same sin that we have in our heart. So he tried to steal some of the glory of God and redirect it towards him. And he was filled with violence. And so it seems like he led a rebellion. Milton in Paradise Lost taught that it was God's love for us as his creation that sort of pushed Lucifer over the edge of going, wait a second. God is going to love these like meet puppets um and give them his glory and his look at look at me and he's going to love them whether that's actually the case of how uh, of of the of what caused lucifer to finally just snap and lose it and try to to lead a rebellion against god we don't know but what we do know and we will unpack here is that we see that satan is an adversary of god and all of god's created order including us as his created Beings. And so he was cast out like a profane thing. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Hebrews, I mean, sorry, Revelation chapter 12 gives an ambiguous reference to a third of the angels being wiped from the sky with him. And Hebrews 12 tells us that the number of the angels is innumerable. So one third of innumerable is. I don't know, a lot, right? And so, so a third of the angels. You will see in this, though, one-third is less than two-thirds. So who is for us is greater than those who are against us, right? And so he was thrown out of heaven. And what we see in the descriptions of him throughout the scripture is a false rule and authority. He's trying to be God, and we see that even in the way he tempts Adam and Eve. Don't you want God's God's afraid that if you do this, you're going to become like him. And so he tempts them with the same thing that drives his own heart. He needs the glory. He should be in charge. Matthew 9 calls Satan the prince of devils. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? So Jesus is recognizing that Satan is attempting to establish a kingdom, a rule, an ordering of the world. So Lucifer, the light bringer, is now being called Satan, which means the accuser. And he leads fallen angels that we call demons against the work and will and creatures of God. He, rebelled, he led the rebellion of Adam and Eve, And he seeks to order this world according to his own will, against the will of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 boldly states that Satan is the God of this world. Ephesians 2 says, You were dead in the the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So he's saying that when you become a Christian, when you become a Christian and you repent and believe, you repent, not just, gosh, I'm sorry for all the things that I've done, let me into heaven. That's not, that's not the heart of what it means to be a Christian. We are removing ourselves from the kingdom of this world ruled by the power of the prince of the air and being put into the kingdom of God, citizens of a new kingdom whose righteous ruler is Jesus. That means everything changes the way about how we see the world and what is right and what is wrong and what is good and what is bad and what is glorious and what is to be avoided. It all transfers over to a new ruler that's not ourselves and not Satan, but Jesus. You used to be dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and all the sons of disobedience. Satan is at work to keep people away from Christ. Satan is at work in this world to order it so not only do we not follow the will of God, but we call the things that are antithetical to the will of God good and right and loving and proper. He is trying to manipulate us, don't you see? He's the accuser. He is also called in the scripture the father of lies. So Peter, in our verse that we're working out of today, says, be sober-minded. Like, in other words, think straight about this stuff. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He is intentional. He is active. He is driven by something. He He has got goals in his life. And that is to destroy the creatures of God, to oppose the will of God, and to establish a world that is antithetical to what God God's purpose is for his own creation. That's why Satan and all of the demons exist in this world. So all this to say, Satan was a beautiful angel who led, led a rebellion against God and was cast out of heaven. He now exists on earth as an enemy to God and all of his creation as he awaits, which he's aware of, doesn't like to talk about, but he's aware of as he awaits the day of his destruction when Jesus returns. That's the reality of where we are. So he is—he has been dealt a mortal blow, and he is thrashing and fighting and wounding as much as he can until his end comes, and it will. So let me correct a few myths about Satan, since we're unpacking some things. Another Lewis reference. He said, you know, if you button up your overcoat and you realize that that at the top you've—you've got your buttons crooked, sometimes you got to unbutton some things to correct that error and then button it back up. So we're going to deconstruct some myths about. Satan. We already covered one. Satan is not ugly and red with a pitchfork. Okay? Um, this, this image, as we've said, comes from medieval drawings meant to mock Satan. Lewis says, above all else, the devil cannot stand to be mocked. If he's driven by his pride and he's driven by his own glory, he cannot abide being mocked. This is why it's okay to dress up for Halloween. Now, at Halloween, don't celebrate evil and as a good thing, and and enter into evil, and invite evil in. That's an improper, that's a twisted understanding of how we approach evil. But if you're going to dress up like a goofy ghost and be like, this is a goblin, and a goblin gets candy, that's mocking Satan. Mock away. Mock them. Carve little funky uh, I almost call them potatoes. They are pumpkins uh, on, the, uh, on the front of your house uh, and mock Satan and the and devil. Do it and give out candy. You're like, this is what you scary devils get, candy. But don't take that to a place of the celebration and the glorification of evil as something that should be a, a, a normal and, uh, and celebrated part of our life together. This is the constant tension. Don't go into superstition, and also don't go into the celebration of, of evil. So, he's not ugly with a pitchfork, etc. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.14 says that Satan still disguises himself as an angel of light. Light, an angel of light. He is deceitful. When you read about how he tempts people, when, when you look at the fruit in the garden, it says it was pleasing to the eye and good for food. He's not always a snarling monster. Um, that's easy for us to say, I'm not, that's bad. Like, I'm running from that. So he doesn't always come as a snarling monster. He oftentimes comes clothed in light, But he is deceiving. He is lying. And so many of the lies of Satan seem like good things and right things and loving things and pure things but they are meant to destroy. And we need to be, if we are aware that we have an adversary, we will be looking out that someone is lying to us. Like If you go to buy a car thinking the salesman is for you, that's a problem. If you go in recognizing all of these promises he's making, It is all to try to get the most out of me. You're going to come in with a much better attitude, or at least a wiser attitude when you come in to buy a car. When we're looking at this life and we see things that are clearly antithetical to the Scripture, they are deceits and lies. And we have to see them as such. He's manipulative. He is sneaky. Let me say this. This is another myth too, though. There is not a cosmic battle of evil versus good that is somehow in the balance right now. There is no yin and yang and the idea that good cannot exist without evil or that light has to have darkness because then we wouldn't be able to see the light and the dark. That's all Eastern religions or at best Star Wars right? There is no light side of the force that's to be balanced by the dark side of the force. No, like what we see, God is not dependent upon evil to exist to be able to show his goodness. One day when Jesus returns to make all things new, there will be no darkness at all because the light of God will be all around us. That is not going to diminish God. That is only going to allow us to see him more purely. So, so God is not dependent upon Satan, nor is he afraid of one of his created beings. Of like, I don't know how this is going to go. Oh, we know how this is going to go. And Jesus wins. So let's not be afraid of some sort of, oh, you know, like, like God is not trembling. Don't be confused. God rules over all. Satan, even in his rebellion, is still serving the purposes of God as he serves for us as an example of what we can be in our sin and drives us to a need for repentance which drives us to the very God that he's rebelling against. Even in his rebellion, he is serving God's Purposes, until God's timing is complete when Satan will be destroyed, cast into a lake of fire is the image that Revelation gives. I don't know what that's like. doesn't sound good. Until that time, he serves a purpose that ultimately advances God's kingdom. Here's another myth. Satan does not rule over hell. He's not in hell tormenting people. And then every now and then comes out to scare somebody. That's also not how it works. Like hell is not a place where Satan rules there and God doesn't. God rules everywhere. You can't lock God out of anything. And so Satan is not in hell. This is at least from Dante's Inferno, okay? and amongst other places as well. Although Satan in, in Dante's story is a giant beast with wings, and he's flapping his wings, kind of thrashing around, and the cold that is produced from his flapping around has frozen himself into a uh, into a prison. In the same way that we have just talked about how even in his rebellion against God he is serving the purposes of God and we oftentimes in our own pride create prisons for ourselves. We can see it in Satan so that we can see it in ourselves and call upon Jesus for mercy and forgiveness. Satan is Although he thinks himself so glorious and full of splendor, he is pathetic. He's pathetic in his false image of God that he is trying to bear. Satan does not rule over hell. Remember John 12 and John 14. Jesus calls him the prince of this world. The Greek word cosmos that's translated world does not simply mean like the globe, like earth. But it's how the world works. It's our system of values and way of doing things, the order of things. And so much of what we see in the world follows the design of Satan, who Paul calls the power of the prince of the air. This is what we have to be so aware of, is that Satan is trying to normalize evil and And if he can convince us that he and his demons and evil itself does not exist, and if we can only just become better humans and love people better, we will move to this glorious utopia, then he is convincing us that we don't need the grace of God and we don't need the truth of the scripture, and we are vulnerable to his manipulations and his rule. We have to recognize that even so many theologies and ideologies and philosophies that sound like they are loving and good are manipulations from Satan himself. And if you say that in this culture right now, you will also, at the very best, sort of be looked at strangely because no one believes that stuff anymore. That in itself is a victory for Satan and his demons if we are not allowed to call out his work without people looking askance at us and wondering about our own even sanity, that is a a victory for Satan. One other myth. Satan is neither omniscient nor omnipresent. And so in other words, he doesn't know everything. And he can't read all of our thoughts all of the time. And he can't be everywhere at once. He can't, he's, he's a created being, a finite being. Now, somehow angels travel fast. I don't know how that works. But, um, but he cannot be in Moscow and in Washington, D.C. and in Venezuela and in South Africa and in your closet at the same time. He can't do that. Say, you may have never been in the presence of Satan himself. Now, he does have legions of demons that I promise you have affected your life. But let's not give Satan more glory and power than he actually has. He is constrained by the limitations of being a created being. He is not the anti-God with all of his powers but for evil. That's not how this works. So let's respect the fact that Satan exists and be sober-minded and watchful and also not give him more glory and uh, and confidence than, uh, than he deserves. So here's what I want to take away from today. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded and watchful. You have an adversary. You have an adversary in your life in Christ. It's not just about you going, oh, I'm trying so hard and I'm failing. You have someone who is working against you. And if you know that someone is working against you, you can be on the lookout, watchful for his work in your life. If, if I told you Someone might break into your house tonight while you are sleeping. You are going to check the locks twice. Well, I'm telling you that Satan and his demons are at work in your life to keep you from holiness, righteousness, and pursuing and following God. It changes things if we recognize we have an adversary because we are then on the watch. Satan is real. I want us to take that away from this time. Satan is real, and his demons are real, but they are not to be feared if we are in Christ. They are not to be feared. Jesus wins in this life and the next. Yes, we're sober-minded and watchful. I asked the prayer team specifically to pray for me as I've been preparing this sermon for the last two weeks, this week's sermon and next week's sermon, because I'm carrying around a backpack full of books on Satan. I'm spending hours and hours reading about Satan all the time. Not a great thing. And so I asked not to go, well, I don't have to worry about him. I asked our prayer team, I asked our staff to be in prayer for me and for our church specifically as we kick this hornet's nest that we kick. But we do not have to be afraid of Satan. Why is it that when we can talk one time, about Satan and demons, and we can move to a place of fear and anxiety so quickly. When every week that we are together as a church, we sing of the power and the grace and the majesty and the glory of Jesus and his presence with us and the victory he's going to win and the hope that's unshakable, we can so easily hand that off like this when we hear of something that we should be afraid of in Satan and demons. We have no fear in Jesus Christ. All of the demon movies you've seen, right, where everybody's like tormented and killing each other because they are all got demons and things like that. If there was an actual person of faith in Jesus Christ in that movie, short movie, because they would just go, be gone with you in the name of Jesus. And no demon or Satan himself can stand in the presence of the name of Jesus. Movie's over, right? So we don't need to be afraid. And if you leave here afraid, you've misheard. Yes, there's enemies to be aware of, but we do not live in fear. We live in the power and the grace and the majesty of Jesus. Press into him, seek him. If you do not belong to Christ, then recognize that Satan is at work to keep you from him. And if all of this is like, man, this is all spooky stuff. I didn't, I came to church like my friend invited me, and I don't know what the heck is happening with all this. Like, like look, just. Be aware that there are realities. Think about it in your life. Why is it so easy for us to scroll for hours on social media and so hard for us to regularly read our scripture? Part of that's your pride. Right? Part of that's our laziness. Like we're we're perfectly capable of sinning without Satan's help. But part of it is that there are forces that are working against you. Why is it hard to get up on a Sunday? Like you go, when I'm here, I love it, but sometimes it's so hard to get out of bed. That sometimes you didn't sleep the rest of the week like you should have. And so, yes, you're being sinful. That's your problem. But there's also forces at work that would much rather not have you here in the presence of the Word of God, in the presence of His Holy Spirit. Let's be mindful. Let's be aware. Listen to this, though, from James chapter 2. He says, you believe that God is one and you do well. So in other words, good job. You believe in God. And then he says this, even the demons believe and they tremble with fear. I love it. These demons that seem all snarly and stuff, they tremble in fear because they know that God exists. And if you are a Christian, you belong to God. If you don't belong to Christ, get there. You are at risk. And Jesus is saying, let me forgive, let me invite you in. If you are hearing these things today and you're going, ugh, like this is the kind of religious stuff that I don't like because it's just just superstition and it's supposed to scare people. And let me tell you again, that is evidence of the work of Satan in your life. Don't you see? He's trying to get you to dismiss what the Bible is telling you is true, even here, right now. So let us not join the arrogance of Satan and go, I'm going to believe whatever I want to believe. We are effectively saying, I make my own truth, which effectively then says, I am God, and you are not God. If you don't take anything else away from this sermon, take that away from this. You are not God. You need the protection of God. You need the grace of God. You need the mercy of God. And with him, he who is for us is greater than all who are God. Let us be aware of our adversary. Let us resist the devil. Let let us mock him as he flees from us. And let us live into the victory of Jesus, not in fear. Take authority in the name of Jesus over those things that are not of God and cast them from this place and from our hearts. And You know our primary weapon against the work of Satan? Worship because what he he wants from us more than anything else is for us to turn to him and worship in adoration, even in fear, because we are worshiping what we believe is his power. And so when we worship Jesus, when we turn to the cross of forgiveness, that Satan does not understand why the God of the universe would humble himself to become one of us and die in our stead, in our place, suffer for us, when he's the one that has all the glory, Satan does not get it. And when we worship and praise him, we drive far from us the effects of the evil one. So let us be a church that worships well, that lives differently, that recognizes its citizenship in a different kingdom. And although we are aware of our adversary, let us mock him with the truth that he will lose to our Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Pray with me. God, you are called Almighty for a reason, because you are Almighty. All those who would oppose you do so in futility, even Satan himself. Lord, where Satan or his demons have had influence in our lives of people in this room, we, in the name of Jesus, Tell them they are no longer welcome here. That in the name of Jesus, they no longer have power and authority here. Free us from our idols, from our addictions, from our lusts, from our lies that are spurred on by the evil one. And let us stand up in your grace. And the strength that you give and the victory that you have bestowed and the hope that you have wrapped us in. And let us stand in victory with our arms raised in praise that we have a God who will vanquish Satan himself. Give us courage. Let us be wise and sober-minded. But let us be overjoyed at the God who is for us. Send Satan and his demons out from our hearts, out from this place, and fill that space with your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.